Let me thank you for the way that uh, you as a church have been supporting us through this time. And uh, I'll just say a few words about offering. Uh, on the way out, for those of you who are here, if you want to give physically, there will be some people with, with some buckets that you can drop checks or cash in. Um, but there are a number of ways that North River has set up to be able to give digitally. You can give through our, our website. Uh, you can give through the, uh, the, the uh, text in church. If you were to text 77977 uh, to uh, North River CC is the, the code, the name that you need for that. Or you can use your, your bill pay through your bank and a number of, of tools that are there. But thank you for supporting our church and for making this a priority. And I just want to especially thank many of you who have switched to some form of digital uh, way of doing that during this time. And you've been very consistent. We've, we've got a, a month to go in our fiscal year, and nobody would have dreamed that we would be in relatively good shape financially coming through all of this, but you all have been very, very faithful. Let me just pray over that and, and uh, pray in general this morning for some of the things that are our concerns as a church, and then we'll move into the message. Father, thank you for uh, blessing us in a number of ways in terms of the financial picture of how our church operates. Thank you for the team of people who are part of our finance team, who govern all of that, who work on budgets, who, who try to figure out the best way for us to make the most of, of the resources that are entrusted to us each year. I ask that you would bless everybody on that team. Thank you for a church that has a generous heart and that has demonstrated that through thick and thin and through all the changes that have come over this last year, 15 months or so. And Lord, we thank you for giving us uh, the resources to do the ministry you've called us to carry out. I ask that you would continue to work within our church. We ask that you would uh, work with the rising leaders that are coming through the TLFA program and for those who are thinking about being involved next year. I pray over the uh, leadership summit that will be coming up in August as the next piece of our, our leadership development package. Lord, we ask that you would continue to uh, send people to us who have been already shaped by you and who have been given a vision for furthering ministry here on the South Shore. And I ask that you would help us to fulfill the mission that you have given us, both in terms of reaching people who are far from God, but also in terms of developing people so that we become uh, fully functioning and with full hearts we are serving the way that you wired us up to serve. Lord, we ask that you would continue to walk with Margie Kamen through the difficult road that she's been on, and we thank you for the progress. We ask that you would continue to watch over Nancy Merrifield as she continues to battle her cancer and go through the, the chemo treatments. We ask that you would give her strength and energy and renewal each day. And now as we look into your word, I pray that you would help us to focus our eyes on Jesus and on the many reasons we have for, for loving Jesus and for receiving his love as well. Give us understanding into your word even more. Give us the ability to follow where your word takes us. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. I have a question for you. Uh, how many of you have ever served on a jury? I would imagine that a few of you have at least uh, had to show up and be a part of the jury pool, and, and some may have served on a jury now, I ask that because I recently watched the 1977 version of the television film, 12 Angry Men. Absolutely brilliantly done. 
Virtually the whole film takes place in one room as 12 men make up a jury tasked with deciding whether a young man on trial is guilty of murdering his father. For two hours, the jury room drama takes us through the deliberations where at the beginning only one man questioned the accuser's guilt and the rest were were ready to find him guilty in five minutes. The other 11 were convinced he's guilty, but they wanted this quick vote and wanted to simply go home. But that one juror, played by an elderly Jack Lemon, forces them to go over the evidence in the courtroom testimony again. And as they do so, slowly, evidence that seemed clear becomes shadowed by doubt. And personal biases behind the convictions of each of the jurors are revealed. In the final moments of the film, only one juror, played by George C. Scott, remains convinced of the accused person's guilt. And when he is forced by the others to articulate his reasons, the personal pain he has been carrying that has blinded his viewpoint is exposed. And all 12 men render the verdict of not guilty. Now, George C. Scott won both a Golden Globe Award and a Primetime Emmy for Best Supporting Actor with that film, the last acting awards he would win before his death just two years after the film came out. So let me ask you again, have you ever served in a jury or been around a jury? So far in my life, I've served on two juries. The first time was a drunk driving case, and the judge appointed me as the jury's foreman. We deliberated for a couple of hours, and even though we all started off thinking that the person should be found guilty, some key facts in this particular case led to a unanimous decision of not guilty, and it surprised me that we all got to that point. The second time I served on a jury was for a child rape case, and the judge declared that the decision needed to be unanimous but it wasn't. After four days of trial and two full days of deliberating, two of the 12 jurors refused to accept the testimony of of a child and discounted everything this brave young girl declared in open court. And I remember being absolutely disturbed for weeks that this man got off, even though the court bailiff let us know after the trial was over that the accused person was already serving a long sentence for other crimes. One of our reasons for loving Jesus is is due to the way that he handled people who are under accusation. Our current series that we've been working through is called, Oh, How I Love Jesus. And in this series, we've been looking at snapshots of people who are moved to express love and appreciation for Jesus. In this snapshot, we don't get to see that love from the accused person, but we love Jesus even more because of the dignity and mercy on display in his treatment of a guilty woman and an angry crowd when her life was on the line. This morning's topic is no longer condemned. What a brilliant thought. Welcome back to North River today. I don't want to bore you with a whole lot of details, but let's just dive right into this text for this morning. I'd like to present to you some reasons for loving Jesus the Redeemer that come streaming out of this well-loved, well-told, often-told story of Jesus and the woman who was accused of uh, adultery, who was literally caught in the act of adultery. Here's the first reason. Jesus doesn't rush to judgment. Let me pick this up in chapter 8, verse 3. It says, The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. And said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. So the religious leaders expected Jesus to fall into one of two camps when they presented this dilemma to him. 
The first camp was those who used the Bible to control, shame, or destroy people. Most readers of this Bible passage notice right away that something seems off as soon as this woman is dragged into the temple courts and before Jesus. Jesus' opponents have brought in a woman caught in adultery when that act always, always involves two people. So we notice right from the beginning that the man who was with her was missing. For that reason, we start to realize that the religious leaders had no regard at all for this woman, and they really weren't concerned about morality or adultery. They were using her and wanted to trap Jesus. This was about control and destruction. They wanted to shame her and to destroy Jesus. Now, I went looking during the week to see if there was some artwork that I could find that, that showed us how in past generations people have viewed this scene. This particular image is a woodcut from the 19th century, in other words, the 1800s. I couldn't find the artist, but it's kind of interesting. You see Jesus stooping on the ground, and he's writing with his finger in, in the dirt or the dust on that day. The woman is standing before Jesus, and then around him are some of the religious leaders who had dragged her into the temple courts that day. What's interesting is that it says in the text that as they came in, Jesus is already teaching a group of people. So there would have been a wider audience, not just the, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law and this woman and Jesus, but artists always have to boil that down in order to come up with an image. This second one is a more modern sculpture, and it's in an outdoor setting, and again, we see some of the Pharisees there and Jesus and the woman, and he is, again, bending down, and he is drawing in the dirt. So the first camp was those people who used the Bible to control, shame, or destroy. The second camp that they thought Jesus might fall into was those who dismissed the Bible's moral expectations. In the mind of the religious leaders, this woman was already caught in the act. There was no question of her guilt, so the issue was if Jesus would condemn her by the moral law in the Old Testament. And in their minds, this was an open and shut case. So, if Jesus refused to punish and simply let her go, in their minds, this would reveal Jesus as a person who didn't really uphold the standards of the Bible, or at least as they interpreted the Bible. And they would then use that to claim that Jesus wasn't the Messiah or a prophet sent by God. What is interesting is that in the previous chapter, at the end of chapter 7, that's exactly the question that was being asked. Jesus had come to one of the major Jewish festivals of the year, and the, the city of Jerusalem would have been crowded with thousands and thousands of people, and the buzz was going through the city of Jerusalem. Who is this person who teaches with such authority and such clarity about the Bible? And some were asking, could this be the Messiah? Some were saying, well, he, he must be a prophet. He clearly is sent by God. And the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were absolutely losing their minds over the fact that so many people around Jerusalem were openly talking about Jesus in this way, that he was either a prophet or that he was perhaps the Messiah. They were convinced that he, was, he could not be from God because he opposed their teaching and their interpretations in so many ways. By the way, both camps still exist in the broader sense of today's church. Some who see moral compromise as opportunities to beat up, the Bible, beat up people with the Bible still exist. They're convinced that Jesus would have us to do that too. As in the first century, they don't hassle everyone over every addiction to sin. 
They just make sure that we remind certain people, gay people, for instance, of their sin in every conversation. They even raise this to, to the need, this need to the point of failing God if they don't mention it in any particular conversation. Some movements have the opposite approach. They ignore personal sin completely, and they only see corporate sins. And so there's a movement set loose in the church today that get upset when Bible-centered Christians see personal sin as the problem between us and God. They see the only sinners being corporations or nations who are seen as oppressing groups of people. And folks, I have to tell you, that is a radically different interpretation than we see in the New Testament. In this clash of expectations, they fail to see the Jesus that John the Gospel writer presents. John's Gospel presents a Jesus who came to the world where everyone falls short of the moral law's demands and expectations. And they fail to see that Jesus came to offer redemption and life to those who fall short. Jesus didn't come to use the Bible to control, to shame, or destroy people, but rather he came to provide hope for a reconnection with God. He didn't come to dismiss God's moral expectations either. He came to create a pathway for people trapped by the moral expectations of the Bible and by God and by human failure to live up to those expectations. We love the fact that Jesus doesn't rush to judgment here in this particular scenario of Scripture. Here's the second reason we love Jesus rising from this passage. Jesus doesn't beat us up with Scripture. Notice they come in, and part of their charge in verse 5, chapter 8, is they say, In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? The Pharisees and the teachers of the law made their case based on Old Testament moral law. They said specifically, In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. This was presented as an open and shut case. But the question is, is it really that simple? The law that they cited is found in Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10. Leviticus is the third book of the Old Testament. It contains the law from God given to Moses. So the chapter begins with this statement, The Lord said to Moses, and then here's chapter 20, verse 10. If a man commits adultery with another man's wife, with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress are to be put to death. So, did you notice what they left out when they quoted this text to Jesus? Leviticus actually says that both of them are to be put to death. Now, these penalties were designed for Israel as a theocracy, where God was the king, ultimately, and they were operating according to his laws. They were not designed for every culture and every, every country and every set of laws. Now we have to ask, where was the other party? Where was the man in this act of adultery? They said literally that she was caught in the act of adultery, and last time I checked, you can't commit adultery alone. It takes two. And so this whole thing seems rather contrived. Also within their question... One of the things that they state is that didn't the law command us to put to death women such as this? As if it was only the woman who was going to be held subject to that particular expectation. The religious leaders argued that she was caught in the act. And if so, there should have been another person that they conveniently have left out. 
This is part of the reason why this whole thing seems like a setup. Like you, I have no desire to see two people dragged into any stoning pit. But the religious leaders here were using selective application by bringing one person in and leaving the other person out, and specifically by making it a woman who was dragged before Jesus and leaving the man out. Their motive, very clearly, was sinful. They brought the woman there simply in order to trap Jesus, and John tells us that. In other words, Jesus understood that, and the disciples understood that. In their mind, the the Pharisees had put Jesus in a lose-lose scenario. No matter which way he leaned toward the first camp we described or the second camp that we described, he would be in trouble. Ignore the moral law, they would claim that Jesus wasn't a a biblical leader after all. Apply the law's penalty, and they would report him to the Romans, for only the Romans could apply capital punishment to a crime. But this trap, based on their interpretation, also provided Jesus the way out. So Jesus exposed their flawed motives, their wrong motives. First, he bent down and he started drawing in the dirt writing. When he did this, they kept questioning him. They were convinced that they were winning. And then he asked this question, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone. Now, this act of writing in the dirt is the only time that we find recorded in Scripture that Jesus actually knew how to write and that he was writing in some way. What we don't know is what he wrote on the ground. We just don't know. We wonder, was it the words from Leviticus 20, verse 10? He would have been familiar with that. Was it the ninth commandment about not bearing false testimony? They had certainly offered a tainted testimony. Was he writing the tenth commandment about not coveting a neighbor's wife? Or could he simply have drawn stick figures there in the sand, a stick figure of a man and a woman, drawing to them his awareness that they'd brought one party and not both? We just don't know. His test upheld the principle that Jesus taught in Matthew 7, 5 in the midst of the Sermon on the Mount. There he said, first, pull the log out of your own eye before pulling the splinter out of somebody else's eye. The principle is that the condemning judge must be without bias or sin. This is why the standard for judges in courtrooms is so high. This is why corrupt judges in any realm are held with such great disregard. And Jesus was pointing out that the Pharisees who had brought this woman in had not even begun to check their own bias in the midst of this. We love Jesus for all these reasons. He doesn't rush to judgment. He doesn't beat us up with Scripture and simply use it as a club over our heads. But here's a third reason. Jesus never leaves us as we were. I love the way that he deals with this woman towards the end of this particular snapshot of Scripture. We go back to verse 8. It says, again, he stooped down. So this is the second time he does this and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time. The older ones first until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go and leave your life of sin. Notice that Jesus stoops down and he takes his eyes off of the crowd and he's just doodling in the dirt there for a second time. 
At this point, Jesus has positioned his challenge as the center point of the action. A group of angry men are circled around this woman and Jesus, no doubt, holding stones. They are ready to take action. But as they ponder his words, one by one, they drop their stones and they walk away. John tells us that the older ones first and then the younger left until there were none of them still remaining. We can only assume that they realized that none of them met this test for an unbiased judge. Their motives were wrong, focused on using her to take out Jesus. Their handling of Scripture was wrong, only telling half the story, only one person on trial. So the danger is suddenly gone, but the tension still lingers as one by one they walk away until only Jesus is left there with the accused woman in absolute silence. He hasn't been looking the angry crowd in the eye. He's just been drawing in the dirt this whole time until they all walk away. And then Jesus breaks the silence by asking a question. He stands up and he doesn't ask, are you guilty or are you innocent? He asks, has no one condemned you? Her answer comes back with the obvious, no one, sir. Now, the word that she uses there for sir can actually be interpreted Lord, and some of the older translations have her saying, no one, Lord, like she recognized who he was, and she may have. I'm not sure why some of the modern translations have gone with the more familiar sir. It's appropriate at times that this was used not uh, regarding the Lord himself, but as a term of respect for, for any man of prominence. It may well have been that she knew who she was in that, that he, who he was in that moment. It makes us wonder how much she knew about Jesus. And then he doesn't tell her that she's okay, that she hasn't sinned, just that no one has condemned her. And Jesus declares that he won't condemn her either. In two short statements, Jesus acknowledges her sin, refuses to condemn, and sets her on a new path toward holiness. For us in this life, the opposite of being caught in sinful patterns is not perfection. We can't get there in this life. We're not capable of perfection. Pride alone will take down every person who believes that he or she can reach sinless perfection through their religious performance. No, the opposite of sinful patterns is the pursuit of holiness. And that's the pathway that Jesus puts her on. Holiness is to be more like Jesus, to live with a heart for God in all that we do. Holiness is leaning into Jesus even more when we fail. And so he says to her, go. In other words, you're free. Leave your life of sin. Leave whatever the patterns were that have brought you to this place. Here's the good news about Jesus. Someday, many days, maybe even most days, our sin is exposed before Jesus. And Jesus doesn't turn away those who come broken, caught, exposed, or who plead for mercy. John's gospel doesn't suggest in any way that she was not guilty. Neither does Jesus. But she is not condemned. What a wonderful reality. She's not innocent, but she's not condemned. And that describes us. We're not innocent. We're not guiltless. 
But before Jesus, we are not condemned, and he provides the way out. Jesus specifically refuses to join with those who would condemn her, but he sends her away changed, renewed, not left as she was at the beginning of the story, pursuing the path toward holiness. I love this picture of Jesus. Jesus writing in the dirt changed everything. So here's the main idea that I want to get across this morning. When the world writes you off due to rebellion or sin, Jesus writes you into his plan for a whole new way of life. That's what he's doing here. Through his simple act of drawing in the dirt, he is writing her new trajectory into his plan for a whole new way of life. When the world writes you off because of something that you've done, because of some either willful or in some ways unaware moment. Nonetheless, when you come to him, Jesus writes you into his plan for a whole new way of life. So let me ask the the obvious application question. There's a large group of people here this morning in our room and an even larger group of people who are watching online. Wherever you are, as you listen to this story, has anything come to mind? Are you caught in some pattern of sin or or addiction to sin. Because we are human, because we live in an age of self-gratification, there is a pretty likely uh, scenario that many people in this room or listening to us today identify with this woman who was dragged into the temple courts. You're wrestling with personal guilt or with personal shame. And some are terrified that the day will arise when you're caught or you're exposed. And so we hide. You need some help to break that pattern of indulgence or that pattern of shame or that pattern that leads to fear and hiding. Jesus doesn't want you to stay there. That's not the life that he wants you to live. He wants you to really live free. No act or area of sin will shock him or ever could. No rebellion or regression is too great for him. It may take help. It may take many ups and downs but he will not leave you the same. And in the process, you will discover who God really wired you up to be and who he has shaped you to be and called you to be and designed you to be. I love the way Tim Keller puts the gospel at this point. He says, here's the gospel. You're more sinful than you ever dared believe. You're more loved than you ever dared hope. And that's why we love the gospel. It it hits both sides of it. It it doesn't just excuse us and wash it away. The truth is when we really look at sin that it it can be sinful acts or sinful thoughts or the stuff that's hidden in the heart. We're more sinful than we ever dared believe, but we are more loved than we ever dared to hope for. And when the world writes you off due to your rebellion or sin, just remember that Jesus writes you into his plan for a whole new way of life. And that's why we love Jesus. Maybe you're lost in thought. Maybe some are are struggling with saying, wow, I didn't expect that this morning would be about me or expose my own pride, my own sin, whatever it is that has you addicted. But I wonder if you would pray this prayer with me. And I know that if you turn toward Jesus... It's a process, not just an act, but he will lead you into a whole new trajectory that is aimed at pleasing God and becoming more like Jesus and pursuing holiness, not perfection, holiness. 
So I'm daring you to read this with me wherever you are. Lord Jesus, I know that you are aware of my patterns, sins, and addictions. I can only change by your strength. I can only become the person you want me to be with your power. Change me from the inside out. I will trust in you as my Savior and Lord in all things. Amen. And I know that if you trust in him this way, and if you call on him this way, Jesus will not beat you up with the Bible either, and he will not leave you as you were. He will guide you into a whole new pattern of life. This is why we love Jesus. This is why we continue to sing.